If you have your Bible there with you today, let's turn to the 23rd chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And I'm going to be reading from verse 1 down to verse 12, but it is highly unlikely we'll get through all 12 verses. Highly unlikely, let me just say. Um, Okay, let me read it to you. Luke 23, beginning verse 1. Then the whole multitude of them arose, that is the Sanhedrin, and led him, that is Jesus, to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, that is Jesus, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked Jesus, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests and to the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea and beginning from Galilee to this place. And when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man was a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent Jesus to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a very long time to see him, because he had, heard, he had heard many of the things about Jesus and hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then Herod questioned Jesus with many words, but Jesus did not answer him. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused Jesus. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him and dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent them back to Pilate. Now that very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. Amen. Gosh, again, you know, reading that, I could just read it all the way through. When, when you read about this experience of the Lord Jesus Christ and all the things dealing with the crucifixion, it's terribly hard just to stop there. If you remember, we are in the last few hours of the earthly life of the Lord Jesus Christ before he dies, before he's crucified. And he has been being held captive by the, the chief priests, we know of one, Anais, and the other one, Caiaphas, and how they mistreated him. We do know at the, at the same time that they're, they're unjustly holding Jesus, illegally holding Jesus, and he's going through those religious trials, like a synod where he's being questioned, and they're trying to produce, they're trying to fabric, fabricate, fabricate, how do you say that word? Trying to... Make up, my goodness, my English is terrible. Make up lies about him. Trying to put together some kind of story 
in order to justify their actions. But we know through the accounts of the other Gospels that their phony witnesses couldn't agree on anything. One said something and then when they brought in another witness, he contradicted the first witness. And therefore they couldn't put together any kind of story. We remember at the same time that Jesus' mock trials were going on, Peter was on the outside. Remember he was in the courtyard and was there that he denied Christ. That he regressed. He had his grit falling down. It all ends. Should we say ends? This experience ends where the other Gospels tell us that Peter became so vehement, so angry, so earnest in his denial of Jesus that he began to curse using bad language and saying God's name in vain, taking God's name in vain, saying may God strike him dead if he knew this man. It tells us here that as the last crow of the rooster happened, Peter, no, sorry, yeah, Peter in his apostasy and his falling down and in his apparent and obvious sin, everyone knew that he was lying. No one believed him for a moment. For the more he talked, the more he convicted himself. He looked over as the sun is rising and his eyes meet with Jesus and he remembers the prophecy of Jesus and he flees out into the city. The Bible tells us that he wept bitterly. Now, the Bible tells us that as the dawn was breaking, as the sun was coming up, as the day was just beginning, the whole of the Sanhedrin met together The Sanhedrin was the ruling council of of Jerusalem, if not all of Israel. The religious ruling council. They were like the politicians. And there were 71 or 70 of them, depending on who you listen to. And their parties were split, not necessarily equally, 35 and 35 or something gets here, 35 and 36 But they were split into two parties. We know there was the Pharisees. They were the minority party for the most part. The Orthodox. The ultra-religious. They saw themselves as the the inheritors of the, the, the laws of Moses. They were the descendants of the those who returned in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And then there was the other party, the liberals, the non-spiritual leaders. They were religious, but they were nominal in their religion. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in an afterlife per se. Certainly didn't believe in miracles, nor did they believe in angels. They were bureaucrats. And they did things by the letter of the law. They were the Sadducees. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not get on. 
They, to say they hated one another is a slight underestimation of what they're up. They vehemently, they, they just did not, could not be in a room together without arguing. Couldn't be in a room without but being bitter. And yet we see over the issue of Jesus, uh, they were united. Even Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night? He was one of the 70, the ruling council. And he confessed to Jesus, we know that you're of God, that you come from God, because no man can do the very things that you do if he hasn't come from God. And what did Jesus answer him? As a man is born again, he shall never see the, enter into the kingdom of God. Even Nicodemus. These Sanhedrin, these, these leaders, these politicians, stroke priests, stroke bishop, bureaucrats were united. And the Bible says here that not necessarily the whole multitude, the whole lot of them. The word, it says in my Bible here, multitude. In English that means the great many, untold number. But really the, the word here is the lot of them. All of them. All of the Sanhedrin got up as one man and they led Jesus to Pilate. Now Pilate, Pilate, we only know about Pilate because of Jesus Christ. It was his connection with Jesus Christ that made him famous. If he hadn't had this little incident, a few hours together with Christ, he would have slipped into history and we would have never have known about him. He had been serving in Jerusalem or in, in Israel since 26. So he'd been there for about four years. And from the very moment that he had stepped into Jerusalem, there had been nothing but problems. When he arrived in Jerusalem in 26, he arrived with all the normal Roman pomp and ceremony and parades. The Romans loved their parades with their trumpets and their big flags and their shiny armor and their medals, you know. And as he was entering into the city, he had an image of the emperor on flags or standards of the men carrying, but also a, a, a statue. And they brought it in. And the Jews, the religious Jews, the very men who are gathering before him now, erupted into violence. You cannot bring idols into our city. Blasphemy, they declared. And they rioted. <laughs> and so... Pilate and Pilate being a Roman, they only know one way to deal with riots. They, those who were caught were put to death. And the, the leaders of the Jews, again, the very man who probably was Aeneas, who was then deposed by, by Pilate later on, sent a message to the emperor saying, Sir, that man that you sent here, your son-in-law, he's, he's just causing problems. He's interfering with the flow of taxes. We want to pay you taxes, but this man's just causing problems. And so 
The emperor wrote a very angry letter to Pilate and Pilate got told off and was embarrassed before court and therefore he hated the Jews very much. The Jews didn't like Pilate. Pilate was from Spain. I think he was from the, the city of Seville in Spain. He was a Spanishman who joined the, the, uh, the legions when he was a very young boy and rose up in them. He, his progression in the legions was helped by the fact that he married Caesar's daughter. Now, Caesar's daughter was a very immoral woman. Indeed, so much so that even the emperor wouldn't have anything to do with her because she was so immoral. She was so perverse in her tastes for life that the emperor wrote a letter to her saying, listen, don't come back to the house. You know, just like, you know, you, you cause your mother too much stress. And this woman fell in love with Pilate and Pilate fell in love with her and they got married. Could you imagine what kind of man you'd have to be to fall in love with a trollop like Caesar's daughter? But it did his career the world of good. And he got this nice juicy post in Israel, in Jerusalem, because they were really, the Jews were really good at raising tax money. And that made them very attractive to Rome. They were very good with money. But there was no close relationship there. They were always at, at odds with one another. Pilate went out of his way to cause them problems. And the Jews were always slow in paying their taxes. Well, to Pilate at least, you know. So there was this animosity, this, this sense of hatred between the Jewish leadership and Pilate. He was, we would call him like the governor. The, 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 uh, yeah, the ruler. The, the, the representative of Rome. So he, he governed everything to do with war, justice and crime. And he was the only one in the entire region, that region, that had the ability to sentence someone to death. He was the only one who had the, the legal power to pass a sentence of death, to give out execution. Any other person did it, it was considered murder. It had to come from the top. It tells us here that, that they went very early in the morning, which is in agreement with Roman tradition. The Romans liked to do their official business, their bureaucracy, excuse my English is terrible again, in the morning from just after daybreak until midday. And then at midday, they stopped all official business, the bureaucracy, all the offices closed. It's very like Finland. All the offices closed and people went about their day. And for a Roman gentleman, the rest of his day would have been taken up with very important things like hunting or the baths or watching sports in the arena or a personal private arena. Horse riding. Just gentlemanly sports. Enjoying himself. What was the point of being the boss 
if you had to work hard. So they're bringing Jesus at the break of day to Pilate, not just because the office is open, because they want to get this over with as quick as possible. They want to get this out of the way. They want to condemn Jesus before the people find out. They want to get it done and over with before a riot begins. Before the news gets out that they've arrested Jesus, that they've abused Jesus, that they've brought him to the Romans. Now, the majority of Jews, when they heard that Jesus had been taken to the Romans by the Jews, that would have been so offensive. Do you remember that they hated tax collectors. The Jews hated tax collectors because they collaborated with Rome. They worked together with Rome against Israel. And so tax collectors in Israel were hated. Could you imagine the hatred that would have been focused towards the Sanhedrin if they, the people, if and when the, the people found out that they had arrested, captured a prophet of God and handed him over to the Gentiles for execution. So they knew that the, the sand, the sun, the, the, the hourglass with all its little sands was taking away, that it was, time was running out for them. And they needed to get this done as quick as possible. So they bring Jesus to Pilate. It's interesting. It doesn't tell us here, but it tells us in the Gospel of John in chapter 18 that when they got to Pilate's office, the office of the governor, the Jews didn't go in. They didn't enter the building. They stood outside because they didn't want to become unclean. They didn't want to contaminate themselves or break the laws of the Passover. They wanted to eat the Passover. They wanted to be able to partake in the festival that was about to happen. And so in order to do that, they couldn't enter into the house of a, of a Gentile, a non-Jewish person. Or they couldn't even allow the shadow of his house to fall upon them. Otherwise, they would have been contaminated. So they're standing outside the doorway, shouting. They kind of hustle Jesus into the room. And Pilate would have been sat on his judgment seat. On a little days like this, higher up than everyone, Jesus would have been before him. The room would have been lined with guards. At the end of the room, the doors, the double doors would be open, and the Jews would be standing outside shouting at Pilate. How hypocritical. It was okay for them in their faith, in their conscience, to hand over an innocent man to be executed. It was okay for them to break all of their own laws and unlawfully arresting Jesus, not giving him the ability to defend himself in a court of law, of illegally of illegally. Paying a blood price for Jesus. Remember they had given Judas 30 pieces of silver. Which was a blood price. It was a, 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 a ransom as it were. They could do all this out of good conscience. But they couldn't enter in. To a Gentile's house. Or not even his house. His 
place of business because they were afraid that it, would, it was against their religion. I don't even know if they were aware of the, the hypocrisy there. So blinded, so misguided were they that they justified what they were doing to Jesus and then glorified in themselves that they were such keepers of the law that they wouldn't enter in to the house of the Gentile. In verse 2 here, we see that they begin to accuse Jesus. And they, their accusation takes three parts. First, that they, that they found this man. I like that. They, we, just, we, we just found out about him. I think that's hilariously funny. Jesus has been wandering around the country for three and a half years, holding massive crusades. Everybody's talking about Jesus all throughout the land. We hear that even Herod knows about him later on. And the Sanhedrin make the statement, we have just found this man. It's like he just fell out of the sky and we didn't know anything about it. That he was perverting the nation. In one of the other gospels, they accuse him that he is blaspheming. Which was hilariously funny because... Pilate himself was a Gentile who had brought idols into the city four years later. He himself was a blasphemer. Indeed, that was one of the accusations that the Jews made against Pilate to Caesar, that he was blaspheming their religion. The Romans had no problem adding more gods to their pantheon of gods. The Romans were very, very liberal. Let them live, they said. As long as you paid your taxes and you acknowledged that Caesar was a god, little g, they were okay. You could worship as many gods as you wanted or as little. As long as you pay your taxes and you recognize that we're an authority over you, we're all good. The the Romans wouldn't have had a problem with Jesus in that sense. But here they're saying that he's trying to pervert, trying to twist, trying to turn the nation, trying to make it something different than it really is. They men then make the two more serious charges that he was Jesus was forbidding the Jews to pay taxes. Now we know that this was a blatant lie. Give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and give unto God that which is God's. Blatant lie. But this was the the sword that they had hung over his neck. This was the, the accusations that they had made about Pilate before when they had written to Caesar. He's, he's Fouling up the taxes. He's making it difficult for us to pay the taxes. The, the stream of income is being slowed down. It might stop because of this man. And that was a very serious thing. If you were a governor and the area in which you were governing began to produce less money, you would quickly find your governorship taken away from you and given to an enemy. And that enemy becoming your boss. And in Rome, 
That usually meant they would kill you and all of your family, servants, take your land. So that was their motivation to stay on top. That was their motivation to always always produce more and more, not less and less. So they're accusing Jesus of trying to interfere with Rome's steady flow of income. And that, that would have caught Caesar's attention right away. Not that Caesar, Pilate's attention right away. That would have, he, he would have felt that bruise upon his own soul. Remember, he got an angry letter back from Caesar saying, wise up and calm down and get everything back under control. And then they make this final charge saying that he himself is Christ. And then they, they translate that word Christ for Pilate, a king. He says he's the Christ. He says he's the Messiah. And you can probably imagine Pilate going, and what does that mean? <laughs> you know, what? A, a king. A king. Not just a prophet. A king. The one who will rule over us. Like, think what they're saying. He says he's a king, but he's there, beaten and bruised. Remember, they've been pulling out his beard. They put a sack over his head and struck him. And his nose is probably broken. He's probably got black eye. He's probably very dehydrated. We know the scriptures tell us that Jesus wasn't a, a magnificent man. He was just an ordinary looking fellow. There was nothing splendid about him. He was poor, humble of a, in appearance. And Pilate, with all his finery and his beautiful headquarters, with his beautifully painted statues and his army all around him, and his authority and his power... And his relationships, remember his wife, who is the daughter of Caesar. He's connected and powerful. He has the ability to kill a person, to take their life or to imprison them or to send them into slavery. And he looks at Jesus. And you, when he asks the question, can you, can you hear the irony can you hear the sarcasm? Can you feel the question mark right there? Like, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the best that they can offer? Remember, the world thinks of a king as someone grand and splendid who owns castles or country houses. Dress in finery. Has beautiful hair. Or if you're the future king of England, you don't have any hair at all. But you know. Beautiful smile. There's something dignified and glorious about you. And when Pilate looks at Christ, the beaten, worn down, small man in front of him, he thinks to himself, you can imagine him thinking to himself, what foolishness is this? This man could declare himself, what's some else, whatever he wants, but it doesn't make him 
what he says he is. And Jesus responds to the question in a very vague way. It's neither a positive nor denial. He cannot lie and say, no, I'm not. Yet at the same time, he's not going to answer the question so that it can be misunderstood. Because again, Pilate is asking from the mindset, are you like an earthly king? Like Herod? Like Caesar? Are you someone great and glorious? An earthly ruler? And Jesus answers like this. It is as you say. We could add to that a little understanding. He also then perhaps is saying, it is as you say, but not as you mean. We all understand that. You know, somebody asks you a question and they say one thing, but they mean another thing. Jesus is saying to him, yes, I am a king. It is as you're saying, but I'm not a king in the way that you think I'm a king. Herod has no problem, not Herod. Pilate has no problem with that answer. Well, fair enough. You're, you're not really endangering Rome. You're not a great threat to us. The Jews, the Sanhedrin, they are offering up Jesus as this revolutionary figure. A Fidel Castro. I can't remember any other revolutionaries. But someone who is a threat, an imminent threat to the peace of the nation. An imminent threat not just to Israel, but to Rome. They are trying to paint them as the boogeyman, as the, 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 the one who will bring down everything. One of the commentaries that I read this week um, pointed out that what we're seeing here is a projection. That the Sanhedrin were projecting what they themselves were doing. They were saying that Jesus was guilty of the very things that they were guilty of. That they were perverting the nation. We know that in a few decades later, they declare themselves independent from Rome. We know that a few decades later, that they, they declare themselves a free nation. They, they cast off the restraints. We know that they were actively, actively swindling Rome. That's one of the reasons why Aeneas, the high priest, was deposed and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was put in place because they were actively swindling Rome from Rome's share of the tax money, the temple tax and other things. They were the ones who saw themselves as the rulers. They saw themselves as the ones who should be ruling this earthly kingdom from Jerusalem. They somehow in some way saw themselves as the fulfillment of the messianic promise. That they should be, isn't God with them? And therefore we see this projection of their own sins 
upon Jesus. And the very things that they're guilty of, they're trying to blame Christ. In verse 4, we see Pilate says to the chief priests and to the crowd, I find no fault in this man. Find no fault in this man. Pilate could not identify any legal reason why to persecute, prosecute Jesus. He should have been set free. He should have. Case dismissed. Thank you. I think we'll have lunch. But it didn't happen that way. Despite his innocence, his guiltlessness, the Bible tells us here, in verse 5, but the Sanhedrin were more fierce in saying, he stirs up the people, teaching all throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee to this place. They would not let it go. They just kept going and going and going and going. And they tried to justify that he was not just a troublemaker in Jerusalem, but from the north to the south throughout the entire country. There was this unbelievable pressure set upon him. Upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, and I want to leave it there. I think those are very interesting verses. I think there's so much interesting things that we can see there. When we think a man is innocent, or when a man is innocent, we, th- we obviously think, well, you know, he'll have his day in court and his innocence will be shown and he will be set free. You have to believe in the system, don't you? I mean, the system has to work. And yet here we see the Lord Jesus Christ being perfectly innocent, perfectly good, and yet the whole of the system against him, how he was railroaded, even when the the judge, the highest authority in the land, could find nothing guilty about him, he was still incarcerated and condemned. All throughout this time, we think of Jesus as being a prisoner, weak and held by greater forces than himself. But the, the truth is that at any moment throughout these proceedings, he could have clicked his fingers. He could have... Could have bent his head, motioned, and legions of angels would have flooded in to rescue him. He could have spoken the word and everyone died. Do you remember in the garden when he said, I am he? And they all fell down and put it him. Jesus is not their prisoner. At another time in one of the other gospels, Pilate says to Jesus, Do you not know that I have the power? Of, of life and death over you. And Jesus looks at him and says, you know, you wouldn't have it if it wasn't given to you. Meaning that it's all working according to the plan of God. I mean, when Jesus spoke, 
the demons listened and the demons obeyed and the demons trembled and the demons fled from Christ, how much more powerful are demons than human beings? They saw him in his true nature. They knew who he was. Human beings wouldn't have a chance. Jesus Christ is not their prisoner. He is not being held there against his will. He surrendered himself to this. And it is not the power of Rome that's keeping him there. It's not the threats and the bindings of the Sanhedrin that are keeping him there. It is his love. His love for you and for me. He endures these things that he might purchase for himself a people, a people zealous for good works, that he might redeem you and I from under the curse of the law. Don't look at like Jesus as the victim here. Oh, he is in an earthly sense. He is in the center of the will of God for him at that point. You know, when bad things happen to people, when hardships and unfairness happens, it's sometimes very easy to say, well, where is God? I've been there, I've done that. I, I kind of, I've, I've prayed, I've been on my knees and Lord, what, what, what's, what's going on? What's happening? Where are you? And it's very easy to think that sometimes that we're, we've, we're under attack of the enemy and we're their prisoner and we're, we're going to get destroyed or broken or overrun. But then we need to think of Christ before Pilate, before the Sanhedrin, later on before Herod. That he was where, where God wanted him to be. All of those hardships, all of those trials, all of that difficulty was just part of the journey of redemption. It was the plan and purpose of God unfolding. Let's never be so naive to think that God's plan and purpose in our lives is going to be clean and clear sailing. That every day will be like a summer's day where the sun comes up and it's shining and glorious and wonderful and that we'll have no difficulties. We'll endure no hardships. That the, the enemy with all his forces will just ignore us. If our master endured hardship and shame and difficulty and surrendered himself to the will of God and went through it, then you and I should expect to partake in that. Because Jesus himself said, as it is with the master, so it will be with the disciple, the follower. Let's never be disheartened or depressed when we go through difficulty or hardships. Let us look upon our Savior, our Lord, and remember his hardships and the unfairness that was shown to him. And yet, he's right where God wants him to be. 
all of the lies that were said against them, all part of the will of God. All of the accus- false accusations made against them, all part of the plan of God. Does that rock your world? When I was considering this, I thought to myself, wow. Because I, I, I pray, Lord, may your will be done. And often what I, I'm praying in my heart is, Lord, may it all work out comfortably. <laughs> Lord, may it all work out pleasantly and enjoyable and I'll make a great story later on in life. An illustration in this sermon. But, but I, I rarely pray, Lord, you know, if it's difficult, that's okay. Let me stay in the difficulty. Just give me grace and let me endure. I rarely pray that. I have to be honest. But we see that it is the will of God to take us through difficult times. As Christ went through difficult times. It's part of the sanctifying experience, isn't it? Part of the victory that we have over the world. It's part of the demonstration that Christ has overthrown the powers of darkness. Disarmed them. Enslaved them. Do you remember Job? If there was ever a believer who who knew what hardship looked like, it was Job, wasn't it? Believer, let us not be so influenced by the age in which we live, to think that our Christian experience shall be pain-free. Let's never think or be deceived into thinking that people will always say good things about us or true things about us. Did Jesus not say, woe to you when all the world says good things about you? Does the Bible not say that friendship with the world puts you at enmity, a state of warfare, hostility, at odds with God? What does that look like? Jesus said that we should be aware that the Christian life comes at a cost. He continually warned his followers of the cost. And he said to them, unless you're willing to take up your cross and follow me and die, not worthy of me. You cannot follow me. Beloved, we all, it's natural, we all desire those warm sunny days. We, we all desire those enjoyable experiences. But let's not be surprised. Let's not be deceived. Let's not be disheartened and depressed when hardship comes. When injustice comes. Think of our brethren in Canada at this present moment. Those pastors that are arrested. I think it's four or five pastors who are arrested and are still in jail at this present moment. Because they would meet together with the church. For worship, they refuse to bend the knee to the state. And they're in jail. Not because they're criminals. 
Not because they've broken any law, because the corona restrictions are not even law in Canada. They're, they're strong recommendations. But they're in jail, and it goes against the constitutional rights of the nation of Canada. But are we to be surprised? Does the world not hate Christ? Does the world not desire to pervert the nation? To turn the nations from the way of God? We know that the nations are steered in some part by Satan, the God of this world, little g. The God of this world. He who will one day rise up to be the Antichrist. The one who will lead the forces of this world in opposition to Christ. In a last ditch attempt to try and overthrow the power of God. And seize control of all of creation. Should we be surprised that the, this world wants all of the things of this world that they, they desire money. The Bible says that the love of money is at the root of all evil. Human beings are materialistic. Think of the pyramids. Think of the tomb of Tutankhamun. I think that was his name. Excuse me if I said it wrong. And all of the golden riches and the things that he took with them to the Afterlife. The greed that consumed those people. That they thought that they could take their gold and their wealth and their possessions with them into the, the next world. Human beings want stuff. The government wants our taxes, doesn't it? It's very funny. It's very slow at giving you tax money, but you're incredibly quick at taking it. We should not be surprised when the forces of this world are amassed against us as Christians. If you are a believer, do not expect your Christian life to be pain-free. And if your Christian life is pain-free, then perhaps you need to really examine your walk. Because the Bible says that friendship, a state of peace with the world, means that you're in a state of hostility with God. And if all the world is saying good things about you, and yet all the world, both Jew and Gentile, were united in speaking against Christ, and condemning Him, and crucifying Him, Beloved, understand that sometimes the will of God for our lives is a painful experience. Sometimes we must endure the bitterness of men, the jealousies, the anger, the accusations, the insinuations, the lies. Sometimes we must face the, the emotions. I think that sometimes... The worst. When people become so emotional, they're angry and they cry and they, they spit fire at you. 
And you can see in their eyes, if they could murder you, they would. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced it. <laughs> I have. If they could get away with it, they would crucify you. They just want you dead. Do not be surprised. I remember many years ago, our beloved brother Jim Elif, when he was very active on Facebook, way back in the early days of Facebook, um, a gentleman from the United States that we know, he uh, was putting, he put in a, a, a comment saying, if only the Christians of today could be like the Christians of yesteryear. If only they could read their Bible and know, know their Bible and pray like the men of yesteryear, of the, the great revivalists, the great reformers, the men who stood for truth in their generation. And through and by them, God changed the world. And everyone was like, yes, Jim, yes. If, if only if Christian leaders could pray and, and, and preach and teach the way they did in yesteryear. And I remember, because I was reading about the reformers at that time, and I was like, does he not remember that all the reformers died, mostly? That they were executed for their faith because they suited odds with the civil power? Because contradicting religious beliefs, like about the Mass, or about Mary, or about infant baptism, incised people into so much anger that they murdered the believers. And I said to Jim, Jim, if men prayed away, we would have this great wave of persecution against the Western Church. No longer would the world ignore us and mock us as this doddering pensioner, this dementia person that they think we are, this kind of old aunt that doesn't really have any place or purpose in the community, they would remember why they hate us. Once again, we would endure great persecution. And Jim sent me a message back saying, yeah, that, that's, that's right. Ooh. Our generation has been so influenced by this kind of golden age thinking where we are to only experience the good. God wants to bless you. God wants to increase you. God wants to make you healthy and wealthy and wise. Yes, but in the next world, not necessarily in this world. Read Romans, not Romans, read Hebrews chapter 11. By faith. Many gave their lives, wandered around in goatskins, hidden caves. Beloved, do not be shocked and amazed when sometimes the will of God for your life causes you difficulty and pain. Do not look around you and think, Oh Lord, what's happening? Have I sinned? Have I fallen short? Am I in difficulties? Oh God, why have you left me? He has not left you. He has you in the palm of his hand. You are still the apple of his eye. Yet, in his perfect will and by his perfect outpouring of providence, you must wander through the shadow of the valley of death for a time. You are participating in the sufferings of Christ. 
You are experiencing what it felt like, what it feels like to be a follower of Jesus. And that be convinced and know positively that at the end of your suffering, whatever it might be, and some of us may be called to give our lives as martyrs, others as living martyrs, sent to jail or islands like Patmos, exile. But at the end of it, God's will will be done and he will be glorified in all things working together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Beloved, let's be more than the age in which we live. Let's not be selfish and small like the kind of Christianity of our age which is materialistic. We want the things of this age. We love this world too much. But rather let us be those among those who love God and desire his kingdom and his glory. Let's take comfort and security in the knowledge that come what may, no matter what you go through, no matter what may happen to you, God is in control. He is sovereign of the good and of the bad. I tried to remember and I could not think. Maybe one of you can remember. There was a hymn that was written by a man who his family had died in a... um, uh, It is well. Thank you, Julie. I knew you know it. The song, It Is Well, that we sing here, we all know the story behind that. That a man and his family were due to go on a trip and uh, the man at the last moment couldn't make it. He had to stay home in America and do some business. But he sent his wife and his children on the boat ahead of him across the Europe. And as the boat was crossing the Atlantic, it struck an iceberg and sank. Not the Titanic, it was going the opposite way. It sank and everyone was lost and his wife and kids were lost. The man who had taken, not the next boat, but a boat coming afterwards, as the boat went over the spot where the ship that had been carrying his family sank to the bottom of the sea, he composed that hymn, It is well with my soul. And it was written in a time when he was broken and he you know, could you imagine looking over the over the, the side of the boat knowing that your wife and your children and everybody else in the boat are down there? And yet he was able to say with great faith, it is well with my soul, because he knew that God was in control, even in the darkest of times, even in the most harshest of experience. And he had the confidence to say, it is well with my soul. Even if the Lord should take everything, yet shall I worship him. Oh, that the Lord would help us to gain such faith. Oh, that the Lord would help us to be among those people who are, who do not shy back or run away from or give up or give in. That we stand for our faith. We pay the cost. We carry the cross. 
To God be the glory. Not just when things go well and we get what we want. When God drives us through the hard time. When we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We will fear no evil for he is with us. His rod and his staff they comfort us. Beloved, do you know the security of knowing that the Savior is in control of your life? Don't be distracted by the many voices of this world. Do not be distracted by the, those who run after false gods and are fixated upon the things of this world. We have a clear and solid promise. I am with you, he says. I will never leave you or forsake you, he says. Come what may. We are in the palm of his hand. We are the apple of his eye. He paid such a great price for us. He will never leave us. Never lose us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we do ask that you would help us. Lord, that we would be wise men. That we would not just simply learn from our mistakes or from our experience, but Lord, we would learn from the experiences of others. That we would learn from the, the witness of the scriptures. We are so grateful for the example of our Lord Jesus Christ who endured all of this, Lord. He considered the shame of the cross as being nothing in order that he might receive the glory of the resurrection and the blessed life of eternity that is to come. Oh, Lord, we pray, we cry out to you, Lord, increase our faith. Help us, Lord, that we might shine as stars in the night sky. The Lord, we might demonstrate to those around us, those nearest and those furthest, Lord, that you are real and alive. And Lord, come what may, our faith is not built of hay, wood, stubble, Lord, but of, of precious things, Lord, of gold and silver, of precious stones. Oh, Lord, please. Father, we pray this for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' precious name, amen.